Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What is up, everybody? My name is Kyle Matovic. I am the host of the In Liberty and Health podcast, where we talk all things liberty, health and wellness, and beyond. My hope is to encourage and spread the message of liberty and physical and mental well-being. I hope you enjoy all the topics we talk about with our guests. We're on all major streaming platforms, so please sit back, relax, and enjoy. Man, I'm doing as good as anyone can do getting buried by his 13-year-old son on leg day. <laughs> I'm not going to apologize for not being on this podcast because I got to go see Metallica. So if that's a problem, kiss my ass. All right, everybody, this is episode 122, and we're going to be covering uh, Biden's abysmal foreign policy as of late. Um, Just real quick, I wanted to ask you guys, what are your thoughts on the uh, Trump and Mar-a-Lago raid? Well, I I haven't been following things too closely, but it does does seem like, um, I don't know, something that's really serious, unprecedented. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely is. It's funny to see all, I mean, it's good to see all the right-wingers come out against the FBI and call to abolish the FBI and stuff. I mean, that's that's great. But, um, you know, I mean, for, for me personally, it's more about the FBI raids and that we don't hear about uh, is why. Uh, but yeah, it's a former president. I haven't been following it super close either. I don't know if they really have anything on him or what exactly they're saying they have on him. Uh, it, um, just the most ironic thing to me was uh, the warrant was signed by a judge that he appointed. Um, it was a law that he signed into law and by an, done by an FBI director who he appointed. So, and then also yeah. the call came from inside Mar-a-Lago. So there, there's like so many dimensions that was all just kind of his fault. Yeah, it's tr- that's just typical Trump. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing that doesn't completely make sense is, is like from an attorney standpoint, you know, Trump has a team of lawyers on his side. And yeah. if the FBI wanted something, the first step from, from DA to lawyer is to call up that person's attorney and to ask them like, hey, we're looking for this, right? We're looking for this evidence. Are you going to turn it over? And, and to try and do it formally like that before you do something that is like as invasive as a big search. Well, supposedly what had happened was is that he was subpoenaed and he said that he complied with all the requests and he actually didn't. And then like he knew this was coming for a while and then they finally okay. went in and raided. Now, that, that was just what I got from Judge Napolitano. Um, there may be some more revisions to that, but that's just kind of my lay of the land as it stands right now. Um, yeah, do you guys have any more thoughts on that? I, I just want to get you guys' take on that real quick. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I just think uh, it's it is just such typical Trump uh, how, how it went down, um, and hopefully we could use this, you know, abolish the FBI energy f- uh, for good. <laughs> That's the best thing that we could hope will come out of it, but we'll see. 
Yeah, Marjorie Taylor Greene currently is uh, pushing to have Merrick Garland impeached, but uh, it, you know, it's pretty much that seems par for the course for her. Whatever I don't like, we can impeach over. So you know, I, I guess it is what it is. It's mm-hmm. a little more uh, fuel of the fire. Um, Pat, anything else, or you good? Well, I I think it just it kind of shows how desperate they are still to try to rule out an, another Trump run. You know, yeah, there's definitely a lot of people uh, that he pissed off along the way and kind of seemingly you know, have working against them. So, uh, I, like I said, uh, at the top of the show, I kind of wanted to get you guys on to discuss some of the stuff going on right now. Uh, so obviously the big one's China, but I kind of want to hit on that last and give it the most time. So, uh, I guess briefly, um, I guess there were some bombing campaigns going on in Somalia, correct, Dave? I know you've been hitting on that a little bit on the show, which, uh, you know, if everybody hasn't already, make sure you check out, subscribe to that because that has been absolutely fantastic. Thanks, man. Um, yeah, Somalia. Last week, there's some airstrikes in Somalia, U.S. airstrikes, and it was the second time within a month that we saw the U.S. bomb Somalia. So it's kind of a signal that they're going to escalate the war there. Um, back in May, Biden ordered to send up to 500 troops into Somalia, which was reversing like a, a Trump drawdown uh, that he did at the end of his administration. He really just, they moved the troops, they kept them in East Africa. They moved them to Djibouti in Kenya, which is right next door. So the drone war could continue in Somalia. Because mm-hmm. um, under Trump, that's the war he, he really ramped up. He bombed Somalia more than any other president. And then when Biden came in, that actually really declined. That was one of the few kind of good things that we saw in the past year and a half. Um, but now we see him order the troops to go in and then two airstrikes with, within a month. And then, you know, we with Somalia, you never know what's going on on the ground there because there's no reporters. Um, we're not getting, it's rare that we get any kind of reports from the scene of the drone strikes there. But whenever, you know, sometimes like Amnesty International has gotten in there and some other reporters over the years and pretty much whenever they get to a scene of a U.S. airstrike in Somalia, they always find just a much different story than what the Pentagon is telling. You know, they always say, oh, yeah, no civilians were killed or harmed. Everything's good. And then they get on, on the ground and they find out that they bombed a house with a family in it or something. Um, so it's unfortunately like it's really tough to know what's going on there. And there could also have been CIA drone strikes going on because this is Africa Command. They put out a press release every time they launch a drone strike. Um, so it's always possible that there's this shadow war going on that we don't know about. But yeah, it's just it's one of the you know forever wars, as they call it, that doesn't seem to be ending anytime soon yeah if i recall correctly that's one of uh that is america's longest war currently because afghanistan is quote-unquote over um we've been there the longest yeah well there was you know everybody knows about black hawk down um but there was the u.s was always involved in somalia since then and one of the biggest things that the u.s did was back in 2006 they backed an ethiopian invasion of somalia and that's kind of what created al-shabaab because al-shabaab is the group that we are at war with there you know on paper that's why the u.s is involved Mm -hmm. and they are affiliated with al-qaeda but they they started out they were part of the islamic courts union which was this group this like coalition of muslims that ran somalia that took over mogadishu from the warlords that typically were there and then the U.S. backed Ethiopia. They invaded and they ousted the Islamic Courts Union. And Al-Shabaab were like the radicals. So the first Al-Shabaab attack that they ever claimed was in 2007 against Ethiopian troops that were occupying Mogadishu. 
And then it wasn't for years of fighting, you know, the U.S. and its proxies until 2012 is when they declared loyalty to Al-Qaeda. And now that that's what gives the U.S., you know, the excuse to just stay involved there. Um, even though they're just a local group, there's no reason to think that they're like a global threat. Um, you know, they just want what's theirs in Somalia, I guess. But, um, yeah, it's just, you know, they still use the 2001 AUMF that they used to invade Afghanistan. And Al-Shabaab didn't even exist when they got that authorization. It's just so ridiculous. <laughs> Same thing with ISIS. That's what they used to fight ISIS and just groups that didn't even exist then. Mm -hmm. Pat. Yeah, well, it's, it's just an example of, of dispelling the hate us for our freedom, right? It's mm -hmm. an, another example of how there's political motivations that are a response to U.S. policy and not some abstract hatred for, you know, as blue jeans and rock music or, or what have you. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. Yeah, I had a, uh, a former follower who now blocked me. Um, because I, I, I think I unfollowed him or something like that because he was being the usual kind of partisan hack blaming Biden completely for the, uh, you know, the ramping up in Somalia, which I mean, obviously it's to, you know, to his fault, but then, you know, of course ignores the fact that they increased boots on the ground under the Trump administration. And, you know, there was a lot of drone strikes there. Um, it's it just, you know, obviously that part goes completely out, but then as soon as it's a Democrat, you know, the, the, the fucking tired game of partisan politics. Um, do you guys have anything else on uh, Somalia or, um, yeah? Yeah, it is funny because with Trump, I mean, because this is just something that I followed closely at the time of the transition. Mm -hmm. Before Trump got out of office, they were bombing the hell out of Somalia mm -hmm. every couple of days each week in January 2021 when Biden was about to come in. And as soon as Biden came in, it stopped. And it stopped mm -hmm. for months. So that was the one thing I was like, okay, at least, you know, the more the drone war in Somalia is, seems to be over, but then we saw them ramp up because the whole time you had all these AFRICOM military guys just saying, oh, we need boots on the ground in Somalia. Mm -hmm. We need boots on the ground. And he finally just caved, I guess. Yeah. When um, Biden first got in and even recently, I've tried to get um, accurate numbers on drone strikes. And from what I could tell, it doesn't seem like he's quite as bad with drone strikes at least not that I was able to see. Now that may have changed in the last couple of months because I haven't looked in a little bit, but uh, I couldn't find any accurate numbers as to where Trump in his first couple of years, I mean, he was bad. Yeah. Yeah, there's been a few lately. We've seen more in Syria. They just keep saying that, they take in, that they're taking out ISIS and Al-Qaeda leaders in northwest right. Syria. And again, and there's been some raids there. And But again, it's just so hard to know exactly what is going on there. Um, mm -hmm. But they're definitely way down the drone strikes. And because Trump came in and he loosened the rules of engagement, he just told the military, gave them like free reign pretty much over whoever they wanted to bomb. And they took advantage of that. And then Biden came in and kind of, I'm not sure if he actually changed the rules of engagement, but he like ordered a review and the drone strikes really slow, slowed down. But we're, again, we're seeing them kind of pick up, but it's still nowhere near as bad as it was under Obama and, and Trump. And for Trump, it was mainly really bad in his first couple of years. Somalia yeah. stayed bad and he kind of was winding it down, but that is, you know, going along. That was kind of the plan all along. I think less drone strikes, less focus on that area as they're turning to this, you know, great power competition as they call it, which mm -hmm. is, you know, just stoking tensions with Russia and China. Yeah. So uh, Pat, do you have anything else to add there or, uh, um, no, not, not in regards to Somalia. It's not really a subject I've studied in any depth, unfortunately. Sure. Uh -oh. But 
Did we lose Kyle there for a sec? Yeah, you probably did. We good? Oh. Yeah, we're good. Sorry. Cool. Yeah, no, no. I'm, I'm, I hate these internet issues. I'll get it fixed one day, I promise. <laughs> so uh, I guess kind of pivoting on to that, it would uh, make sense to uh, talk about Ukraine and Russia. Um, I haven't really followed it too, too closely. So uh, Pat, if you have uh, kind of anything you kind of want to start on there, and Dave, you could take it from there. Well, I'd pitch to Dave first because he's he's been following the facts on the ground much more closely than I have. I sure. I know Dave, you were talking about there's a there's a a nuclear power plant that's it's it on the Dnieper River that there's there's action around risking some kind of a, a nuclear catastrophe. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it's really strange. You know, we saw this power plant, the Zaporizhia power plant. It's actually the biggest nuclear power plant in Europe, they say. Um, but we saw fighting there in the beginning of the war. Russia captured it. They control the territory around it. But over the past few weeks, we've been seeing it's been getting shelled, this power plant. And Zelensky and Ukraine, they just blame, they're blaming Russia. And the Western media, like, they're not totally blaming Russia, but the way they're framing the stories is just, they say, oh, Ukraine accuses Russia of shelling nuclear power plant. And you read the article and you don't find out until like a few paragraphs in that Russia controls the power plant. Because that anybody, once you learn that, you're like, oh, then why are they bombing it if they control it? It doesn't make any sense. Um, and then I was actually just reading, because uh, I saw this thing today. Zelensky said he's threatening Russian soldiers that are attacking the power plant, that they're going to be targets of Ukraine's intelligence. And that's the story I saw today, just all over the media. And then I just went over to Russian media, and I saw all these Russian officials and diplomats. They're calling for the IAEA to come in the international... Uh, atomic energy agency that's the un's nuclear watchdog they do the nuclear inspections and stuff they've just been calling for the iaea to come in because they want to show them what's going on there and and they're saying that once they come they'll know it's not us bombing the, the power plant but for some reason that's been delayed it's just very strange and you know it's really confusing and it's tough to know exactly what's going on, on the ground in ukraine but i think in this scenario it's pretty safe to say that Ukraine is is lying and just trying to kind of provoke a crisis maybe for more Western intervention, even though it seems so risky to be shelling a nuclear power plant. And again, it does look like Russia has troops there, which I think is pretty irresponsible to militarize a power plant. Um, and it's funny because you saw Ukraine say that kind of blame Russia for having troops there and saying that's what's drawing the fire. But at the same time, they're, they're trying to say that they're not the ones doing it. There's kind of conflicting messaging coming out of Ukraine on it. Um, but yeah, it just seems so dangerous and, and uh, just irresponsible kind of on, on both sides, but more so on Ukraine because they seem to be the ones attacking it. Yeah, well, when you were covering some of the stuff with the, uh, I think it was the ships leaving some of the ports, mm -hmm. um, there was a they bombed one of the boats or something like that, if I remember correctly. And it was kind of odd the way that um, it, it seemed to be coming out. Like they, no one got hurt, but they were making a big deal out of it, but it like, wasn't a big deal. It, I, I know I'm kind of butchering the way that sounds, but it, it seemed like something like everyone was agreed on it. And it was almost like an accident because no one really owned up and said like, look, this is a clear sign of aggression. Everybody just mm -hmm. kind of dusted it off. Well, that was actually so right after they signed this this deal to get ex Ukrainian grain exported to kind of yeah. unlock Ukraine's Black Sea ports, Russia bombed Odessa, the port of Odessa, and they hit a a warehouse. They said they hit just military targets, and Ukraine and kind of uh, 
downplayed it because I mm-hmm. thought, oh, they're going to say, oh, this is Russia, you know, violating the deal. That's what the U.S. said. That's what Blinken said, who didn't have anything to do with brokering the deal. They were just looking for an excuse to say, oh, see, Russia is not going to live up to it. But we saw Ukraine kind of downplay that. And then that kind of told me that, oh, they're serious about this. They want to get this grain moving. And since then, we've seen a lot of ships leaving Ukraine. There's been some issues with the ships that leave because the grain is very old. (laughs) And the first ship that left, the buyer turned it away, the ship away. Um, But, you know, that's just the result of talking. Turkey brokered those talks between Ukraine and Russia and got the grain moving. And that's just not what the U.S., they've, you know, totally failed in that department. Mm-hmm. So what's the uh, status with the uh, NATO agreement? Because I know the Senate voted, what was it, 97 to 1 or something like that? Yeah. <laughs> they all agreed for it. And Rand Paul even voted present instead of voting no, which was – and Hawley was the one that voted no, but he said that's because we're taking away from the focus on China, of course. Shocker. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was disappointing with Rand Paul. Like, I just don't see the point. You vote present mm-hmm. – you're going to make the Hawks, you know, they're not going to be happy. And then we're not going to be happy. Like, what's the point of just sitting on the right. fence? It's a very that AOC was... move. That's She voted present on the extra billion dollars in aid for uh, Israel. Uh-huh. You know, it's just kind of like a you're not taking a stand either way. Mm-hmm. That was kind of like with uh, when Rand, he, he tried to attach that amendment with the Ukraine's weapon uh, bill where there would be an inspector who would... Like, <laughs> right make an accounting of where the weapons went and like at the time i kind of criticized his move because it was like well why don't we have more of a vigorous opposition to this but i guess from a pragmatic point of view you know it would be really nice to have someone trying to take account of where these weapons are going Mm -hmm. (laughs) i know that it seems like a really tall order because wasn't there a report dave where there was only like 30 percent of them actually reaching the front lines yeah, there's a CBS documentary that came out last week, last Sunday, and they quoted this guy. He worked for a nonprofit that helped get military aid to Ukraine, and he estimated, this was back in April, that only 30%, 30 to 40%, he said, was making it to the front lines, the final destination, as he called it. And this, uh, you know, so we don't know if that's an exact number, but that was this guy's guess, who was pretty involved in the process at the time. CBS puts out this documentary, and the Ukrainian government freaked out and CBS pulled it. I mean, it's really amazing how much influence the Ukrainian government has over our media right now. And the Ukrainian foreign minister called for an investigation into how, how or why that documentary was put out. You know, it's, um, it's just amazing that they were able to pull it down. But that was back in April. And then we saw CBS, they updated the article that they put out about the documentary. And they said, oh, this guy who estimated 30 to 40%, he says now that it's much better. So you know, don't worry about it too much. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. After they talked to him, I'm sure it's a lot better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> After, yeah, I'm sure the Ukrainians had something to say to that guy. You know, I, and I mean, like, in, I guess in defense of Rand Paul's move, like, if we really did have someone who was accounting where these weapons were going, at least we would have more actual tangible, like, ammunition, <laughs> for lack of a mm-hmm. better term, to attack these um these weapons shipments and the weapons sales so yeah i mean that's like afghanistan they had the special inspector general for afghanistan it didn't help the waste (laughs) yeah but you could see you know you could really it really shows how wasteful it was you could watch the fires it burns instead of just kind of hearing about it (laughs) (laughs) yeah so 
Amnesty International comes out with that report saying that Ukrainian the Ukrainian military is setting up its operations in in civilian areas and kind of even though Amnesty International for like most of the conflict and in a lot of ways aren't they like aren't they pro US in a certain sense or pro West and they get so much backlash against this and it seems like they're really kind of caving to the pressure even though their coverage has been mostly pro Ukrainian. Yeah. Yeah. They freaked out about that too. The Ukrainian government, they weren't happy with that. Uh, but amnesty has been, you know, for the whole war, they've been very critical of Russia, accusing them of war crimes, accusing them of using cluster bombs. And then they put out that report about Ukraine's military. And uh, it was also critical of Russia. It said it doesn't excuse what they called Russia's indiscriminate bombing. And, but that you know you just see how much they freak out about this stuff what was interesting about that is that you know you hear this human shields accusation a lot it, it definitely brings gaza and hamas and israel to mind <laughs> but and people tried to make that false equivalency like with me uh, because i wrote up about the amnesty report but gaza and ukraine are two very different places gaza is under blockade it's one of the most densely populated places on earth and you know, they, they'll just bomb a Hamas guy or like they just did last week of an Islamic Jihad guy when he's in his house and just kill his whole family and or, you know, families nearby. It's very different. But anyway, so Ukraine, what was interesting about that is that they said Ukraine's military and all these places that they went, they were basing in schools and hospitals when there was viable alternatives, they said, when there were other places they could go where they put in, wouldn't put civilians in harm's way and when we saw you know we really saw this more in the earlier in the war when every time we saw uh either russia bombed and killed civilians or ukraine accused them of killing civilians there was like this big push for western intervention for a no-fly zone so i think it might yeah. be part of that kind of propaganda campaign that they were trying to get the western intervention and, and I, um, I was just looking up some other things about um, Amnesty International to put it in context for people who are familiar with my work. There's a whole page about the Uyghur genocide <laughs> and crimes against humanity. And then I, I typed in amnesty.org, you know, search white helmets. And, and Dave, maybe you know more about this. If, if Amnesty has been, you know, what side they were on in the Syrian war, if they were, you know, backing the white helmets or things like that, free Syrian uh army. Yeah, I, I know that they were on that side. I don't know if they were like embedded with the white helmets or anything. I don't know too much about it, but I know that they were very, you know, Western. They followed the script on that pretty good. Um, and yeah, the only time you really see them kind of go against the U.S. Um, Western narrative or whatever you want to call it uh, is really with Israel. They They recently called Israel an apartheid state. And the U.S. like, you know, rejected that report and had a lot of harsh words for amnesty. And then the point all like the, the I saw, I forget his name. I think maybe Matt Lee. He's a reporter with AP. And he kind of grills the State Department sometimes during the press conferences. And he was like, well, you cite amnesty for all, you know, Venezuela, <laughs> Iran, just like listing all the countries where they use amnesty international reports to say, see, this is why we got to sanction them or go to war with them or whatever. So, so you just think they're wrong about Israel? <laughs> so that was, that was pretty funny to see. Um, but yeah, that's why. I mean, I think it says a lot that even they put that report out. Uh, I think that means that it's, it's you know, a pretty legitimate criticism maybe. 
Um, but again, you know, it is also a lot of these organizations can be politicized and maybe they had other reasons to put it out, but. What's going on, guys? Um, we're going to take a quick break from the show to tell you about these show sponsors and the way that you can support me and this podcast. Um, I'm sponsored by Axe and Sledge. We won't really focus in here, but uh, right here in my hand, I have their um, the grind, which is essential amino acids and hydration. Um, feel free to check it out. Um, this is your mom's sweet peach. They have some awesome flavors and awesome names. They also have multivitamins, fat burners, creatine, beta alanine, um, all sorts of different supplements to help you get all jacked and tan and help you become a person more full of uh, liberty and health as this show is about. So um, if you want to support me and support this podcast, then feel free to go to axandsledge.com and check out um, all their great supplements there and use code Matovic10, that's M-A-T-O-V-C-I-K-1-0 at checkout for a little discount and to let them know I sent you their way. All right, everybody. Thanks. Now back on to the show. Yeah. The the one interesting thing I, I noted, or at least I, I thought was that you at least have some people at Inter Amnesty International still standing by the report about Ukraine, you know, about, about the Ukrainian military being in civilian areas. And um, I don't know, it, it just made me think about how complex the topic must be even inside the organization and, and amongst, uh, you know, this, this whole thing that there's some people who are actually committed to human rights there. Mm. Um, but, but even, you know, the, the Western pressure campaign or the you know the ukrainian lobby or the ukrainian government putting pressure on people to shut up yeah and you saw some people resign like the head of amnesty international ukraine resigned i think some others and i also saw on twitter like some amnesty employees were sharing like gray zone articles or like retweeting aaron mate yeah. and they were all like look at these i can't believe people working for amnesty are retweeting you know russian propagandists and just all those typical accusations so i guess it does show that there is like a diversity of opinion within the organization to some extent um so you guys were kind of bringing up israel is there anything else you guys need to uh, head on with ukraine russia no um i was listening to uh Tim Cast, I know uh, Pat's favorite, uh, best or favorite person in the entire world. I had they, a dream of I was on Tim Pool <laughs> last night. I'm serious. And, oh and my god! I'm I'm sorry to to cut in, but I no, got no, it's okay. Yeah, it was like you know I, I woke up and I had I, my kids woke me up right in the middle of it because we were about to go on air in my dream, and he he had me using this dinky little microphone that I couldn't keep up on the stand. And I was like, didn't know how to use it. And I was like stressing out because we were about to hit record. And I knew I had to tell him about China, you know. <laughs> so, so then the kids wake me up right as we're about to go on air. So anyways, sorry. I oh, know you're good. That's that's actually really funny. Um, of course, uh, they're still talking about um, Iran being a, a big threat to Israel. So um, because, you know, they're still months away from having nuclear powers. And I know that uh, they're not seemingly wanting to resume any talks about getting back into the nuclear deal because nobody's being reasonable um as usual with the biden foreign policy it seems to be just carelessness and escalate at all costs um do you guys know kind of more of what's going on there as of late um well they've been iran's been very willing to talk um and the there was side. sorry there there was just uh some talks in Vienna, they just reconvened there. Mm -hmm. The EU is trying to save the deal. And I think it might be something to do with oil prices because when things were really bad, I mean, Europe, it's a lot worse for Europe than it is for us, I think. 
um, we saw Macron and some French officials say like, Hey, why don't we maybe lift sanctions on Iran and, and, and Venezuela to get their oil on the market. So I think that has something to do with the EU's push to get this deal done. So they put forward some final draft they, that they gave to the U S and Iran. And we don't really know the details, but right now they're, you know, they met in Vienna, Iran and the U S went back to their capitals and they're talking about it. Um, but it's been the fact that it's just been so long, you know, Biden could have revived it on day one. Um, I think I, I don't see the U S I would be really surprised if they agree to whatever this deal is. Their whole line is that they don't want to lift sanctions that are non-nuclear related or outside of what they call the economic benefits they're supposed to get from the nuclear deal from the JCPOA. And Iran has a very good argument as to why they should lift other sanctions because Trump pulled out in 2018 and just hit them with all these sanctions, like thousands of sanctions. And the U.S. wants to kind of pick and choose which ones to lift. Mm -hmm. um, but their argument is, let's just go back to square one where it was before we pulled out. But they've also been very willing to, they've given a lot of concessions um, because, you know, that they don't want to build a nuclear weapon. That That's pretty clear at this point. If they did, they wouldn't be really entertaining these talks as much as they have. Um, there might be a change, though. Uh, you know, if the U.S. keeps just pushing them and sanctioning them, they could sw eventually switch that policy. Um, but for right now, it's kind of business as usual. They're just delaying the talks. Sanctions are still in effect. They're increasing sanctions. So. It's, it's the weirdest thing to me because it seems like Iran has always been compliant and, like, never gave the U.S. any shit so long as we kind of held our end of the bargain and it just seems like we're just constantly fucking nailing them to the wall with sanction after sanction and just treating them like shit when they never give us any issues and uh you know kind of brings up the uh, ron paul quote when um he was running i think it was 2012 he said well we're definitely giving them a lot of reason to want to develop a nuclear weapon <laughs> when we just continually fuck with them and they they comply with everything we did we asked them to do yeah yeah i mean that's definitely true and they the thing with Iran, though, is that they could just blame whatever they want on Iran. Anything that happens in the Middle East, they blame the war in Yemen on Iran, which is just totally ridiculous. Corey Mills called it a proxy. Yeah, yeah, they blame the Houthi attacks in Saudi Arabia on Iran when Saudi's been bombing this country for seven years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so they could just pin whatever they want on them. Uh, you know, that's happening in Syria, Iraq, Lebanon. They could all just blame everything on Iran. So they always have these excuses to not, you know, lift sanctions. Yeah, it's almost like it's a convenient boogeyman just to kind of keep up nation building or, you know, drone campaigns yeah. over there. Yeah, and it's about Israel, of course. I mean, it's all about Israel. That's why Trump can never have a good foreign policy because he's so pro-Israel. And that requires, you know, having this kind of sanctions, economic war against Iran, this kind of cold war, I guess, between Israel and Iran. Mm -hmm. You got to support that if, you know, you're pro-Israel. Had you got anything to add, or uh, we can kind of move on to uh, China if you don't got anything else. Well, it kind of leads into the China issue, man. I mean, because it just seems like we're escalating on three different fronts here. Uh, I mean, I know that Iran is not, it's not identified as being one of the main great power competitors, but it is a rogue state in terms of the, the NDS. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, it seems like, 
I, I just don't know. I, I wrote this piece a few months ago called um, Uncle Sam's Grand Delusion, talking about how the, the new NDS that, that came out this year and how they, it seems like they think that they're going to be able to put a stopper in the Ukraine situation so that they can pivot and focus on China. But I mean, of course, I think that they've opened a Pandora's box in Ukraine that's not going to be closed um, in, in fast enough for them to really begin their their China push in earnest. So they're going to be stuck pushing these three fronts that they can't de-escalate or contain. And I think that it's just lunacy to think that they can they can do that. And then you have Josh Rogan writing a column in the Washington Post talking about, well, actually, you know, we can we can escalate on all these three fronts. So don't worry, we're going to do it. If you got anything to add. Yeah, I mean, it is just like, it does seem totally insane, the policy right now. And like Pat said, the war in Ukraine, I mean, that's it's not ending anytime soon if the U.S. keeps going the way it's going, just flooding Ukraine with weapons, giving them all the support that they want. Uh, you know, they're just going to keep fighting. And um, we see this kind of narrative that Ukraine's getting ready for this counteroffensive, but we still haven't seen any sort of counteroffensive. We've seen them, you know, starting to hit, you know, Russian-controlled areas in Ukraine. There's been some blasts in Crimea that looks like it's Ukraine might be behind it. Uh, that's not all clear yet, but, um, you know, this is just going to continue. And Russia's still making gains in the Donbass and Donetsk. And the that's the one province that they don't fully control in the Donbass. And they're still making pretty slow but steady gains. And I think we're just going to see this go on. And we've seen Russia say now they're probably going to expand the war, keep expanding it deeper into Ukraine as the West is sending these weapons. And now they're looking to also ex escalate with China. We saw the Pelosi trip, which we could talk about. Um, yeah. You know, it's really all about Taiwan right now. They want to also build these alliances. They really want to build a base, another base in Southeast Asia closer to China. But I don't think they're going to have much luck with that because all the Southeast Asian nations, they're they don't really want to get caught up in all this. You know, they kind of, a lot of them play it down the middle. A lot of them have a military relationship with the U.S., but they're not really looking to make it any bigger than it is. Mm -hmm. um, and then with Iran, yeah, it just seems totally delusional. It really feels like an empire in decline, the way they're approaching this. And it's either hubris, like I guess it is, that they think they can do this. Because you got to think, if you want to control the world, there's a much better way to do it than what they've been doing. Everything they're doing is backfiring, all the sanctions. Mm -hmm. Unless there's something I'm missing here, it just seems uh, like they're just, you know, setting up for their own collapse, for their, their losing influence by doing what they're doing. It's very clear. Yeah, so um, kind of throw it back to Pat. Um, that panel that you were on that we were kind of talking about before we started the show, um, the one guy gave you pushback because, um, and I agree with your premise, that it seems like we're trying to set up Russia for a kind of like Afghanistan deal where you could just drag them out, bleed them out um, through Ukraine. And it seems like they want to set up Taiwan to do the same thing and uh, or um, to do the same thing to China. And it seems like China's pretty, you know, upset about these, you know, the Pelosi visit because they were um, doing some pretty aggressive military drills. So, um, Pat, if you kind of want to lay out some of the stuff that's gone on over the last uh, couple of weeks, because I know you've been digging into it a lot. Yeah, well, I, I was on that panel with uh, Connor Eccles from Responsible Statecraft, who, who's, a, you know, like-minded, but he, ta he takes, he's from a more of a realist school standpoint, and, mm -hmm. and he doesn't have the same fundamental 
um, you know, principles, I guess, that libertarians would per se. And I think if I recall correctly, and I don't want to misrepresent what he's saying, sure. but I, he said that well, the United States doesn't have an interest in starting a war with China over Taiwan. And I, I was saying, well, um, and maybe you'd have to go back and, and hear what he actually said. But yeah. I, I was saying, well, I, I think just speculating one of the reasons why they would want to escalate in the area would be to maybe they want to entice China to invade Taiwan or move on Taiwan in some kind of way so they could set up um, a regime, like an ultimate regime regime change type situation in Taiwan with, uh, with some kind of insurgent war or to have China expend a lot of its military energy taking the island itself so then they're less of a threat on the global stage. And, and I mean, that it's speculative on my part, to be fair. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't see any other reason, but like, so we saw Pelosi visit Taiwan. She's the first House Speaker to do it in 25 years. And it's followed this pattern that we've seen over the past few years of congressional delegations becoming more frequent, more high-level U.S. officials going to Taiwan. I don't really see any other reason for why she visited uh, uh unless it was just to provoke a response from China. I mean, Pelosi is, doesn't seem like she knows what the hell's going on <laughs> these days anyway, so it's tough to know exactly what was going through her mind, but the people that pushed her to do it, it is, you know, they, they just need an excuse to expand in that region, and I think they got what they wanted by China doing these big drills. Now they could say, oh, look at these drills. We got to send more warships through. And in Congress, they're trying to pass this new bill that would totally change the U.S. relationship towards Taiwan, it would designate them as a major non-NATO ally, which goes against the one China principle. If Taiwan's not a country, how are they an ally to the, right. to the U.S.? And also would give them $4.5 in military aid for over the next four years, I think it is. Um, and the, the White House is apparently a little spooked by this bill. They think it goes a little too far. But now we just saw another today, Sunday, Another congressional yeah. delegation just landed there. Mm -hmm. um, I forget who was leading it. I got to read up on I got, it. I got the article pulled up right here, actually. I'm, I'm glad you're kind of hitting on that. Uh, Five-member team led by Democratic senator from Massachusetts. Um, yeah, it was somebody I never heard of. Um, I don't... Ed, Ed, uh, Senator Ed Markey. Mark, yeah, Ed, Ed Markey, yeah. Yeah, Ed Markey, that was it. I'm trying to see if there's... Uh, if it it seemed to me like guys. it was... It was a surprise delegation that it, it wasn't announced beforehand. They just kind of showed up. Uh, yeah, that's the way that they do it usually. Yeah, okay, that's what, so yeah. Oh, oh right. sorry. Uh, Republican rep uh, Amua, Amada Coleman, Red Wagon, a delegate from America Samoa, Democratic House members, John Garamendi, Alan Lewenthal from California, and Don Beyer from Virginia. So those aren't any names that ring any bells or sound significant to me, but you know, maybe you guys know better <laughs> yeah yeah i don't really know them but um and this is the way congressional delegations typically visit taiwan they just show up that's why the pelosi thing was kind of so dramatic was because we learned about it a few weeks before so china had its time to really warn against it and say hey we're really going to do something if, if you go through with this visit um so we're going to see a response from china some more military drills in the region over this um but you know, China's also signaling that they're going to speed up their unification process. They they want it to be peaceful. That's what they've always said. Um, but they won't rule out military action 
if what they call, you know, if the U.S. intervenes too much or if they declare independence. Um, but, you know, we're just going to this is just a road of escalation. We're just going to keep seeing es escalation from the U.S. China is going to respond, escalate, and who knows where it's going to go. You know, I was always one to say, oh, nothing's going to happen for at least a decade between the U.S. and China because their economies are so intertwined. But, you know, with what we're dealing with here, with these military drills that they held all around Taiwan, they simulated a blockade. They were filing missiles over the island. They're showing that they're pretty serious about it. And now you're going to have the U.S. respond. They're saying they're going to do drills in the Taiwan Strait now. So how's China going to respond to that? An accident is possible. Anything could happen. It could spiral at any time. Uh, and it's just completely reckless. And now it seems like a lot of people, more people are paying attention to it, at least because Pelosi's visit got so much attention. Because before this, it felt like just nobody was listening or nobody cared about these escalations. And it made me like kind of question myself if I'm looking, thinking too much into what's going on, but I think this visit and what's happening here, I think now it's very clear uh, what the plan is. Yeah, and even a lot of like the uh, MAGA right guys, uh, Pat was pointing this out to me and I didn't get it at first, but he was looking in like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, and a bunch of the better right-wingers in their tweets to see if they were saying anything about the Taiwan visit and it was radio silence. Now I think Marjorie Taylor Greene, if I recall correctly, came out and said something about it, but it was never like she shouldn't do this because it's a provocation. She basically, I, I can't remember the exact phrasing. So whoever's listening would have to look up the tweet. Well, this, but, this uh, is what yeah. she said, Kyle. She said mm -hmm. something about uh, Nancy Pelosi's husband being involved. You know, this That's whole thing it. with insider the trading. Yeah, insider trading in NVIDIA chips. And I actually wanted to talk to you about, Dave, to get your thoughts on this, because I think I got this idea from you, which um, <laughs> is not uncommon. Uh, but you were talking something about um, how the right-wing talking point here is to deflect away from dangerous U.S. escalatory policy in the area to, to play it off as, oh, well, you know, Nancy Pelosi sucks, which, you know, she does, but the right really hates Nancy Pelosi right. and they want to spin it as some contained corruption thing as a partisanship and in, in to detract away from the this dangerous U.S. policy that's been going on uh, bipartisan for for years and years, decades. Yeah, yeah, they kind of want to limit it. It's like kind of like a limited hangout that they want to say, oh, it's all about Pelosi's insider trading because how do you say it? NVIDIA, that American chip company? Yeah, and NVIDIA, they make graphics cards and, and chips. Yeah, so Pelosi's husband bought a bunch of NVIDIA stock before the Congress passed that bill, the Chips and Science Act, which includes $53 billion to subsidize domestic uh, microchip semiconductor manufacturing. So that raised everybody, you know, the red flag of possible insider trading. And then we actually saw him dump that stock right before Congress passed the bill. So who knows what that's about? I don't, I, I don't know. He dumped it at a loss. Maybe he felt like he was caught. But again, I mean, I knew they were working on that bill. Is that really insider trading? Um, you know, maybe he knew that it would happen quicker than, I, you know, the public knew. But who knows? But anyway, they're, so they're trying to make it about her going there was uh, to pump up stock, like American, I guess this is the narrative, American semiconductor stocks, because Taiwan is the world's leading chip manufacturer. Um, and her visit kind of 
um, made those stocks go down. But it actually, overall, even the American stocks, they all took a hit when she went there because of the uncertainty of it. Um, and you also saw China uh, sanctioned Pelosi and her husband afterward. And it's funny because I saw a thing, CGTN, I think it's Chinese state media. They had this little report about Nancy Pelosi's husband's investments in China and how these sanctions will actually hurt hurt the Pelosi family, which I thought was funny. But yeah, we saw them just try to spin this as, oh, it's all about chips. It's all about chips. Corrupt Nancy. She's working with the CCP. You know, it's all just uh, corruption. It's nothing. And what's funny too is that we saw a lot of these guys that freak out about any kind of Chinese warplanes flying near Taiwan kind of ignore these huge drills. Like they didn't even really talk about them that came after Pelosi's visit. It's something like it goes against their narrative that the Democrats are in the pocket of the Chinese government. And uh, so that was kind of strange to see. Overall, really, Western media didn't make that big of a deal about these drills when, when we would see Chinese planes fly in the air defense identification zone, which is a huge zone that Taiwan claims. It's not airspace. And they wouldn't even really fly close to Taiwan, but we would see, they would just make the headlines all the time. And uh, it almost seemed like these ones were downplayed because it was so obviously a response. It, like, it's clear that the U.S. provoked this. There's no way to kind of spin that in the, in the immediate aftermath. They're going to do it now and further down the line. You know, it's just going to be all about Chinese aggression. But I think it's just so obvious that Pelosi's trip made all this happen. It's so odd to me because the popular narrative is to say that everybody's bought known by the CCP, but then as soon as there's like direct contrary evidence to that, as in Biden continually saying that we have an obligation to defend Taiwan, Pelosi goes and does this, literally everyone just goes radio silence and nobody says a word about that, but then they'll still hawk it up. It's it's so weird to me. And even um, I mentioned I was watching Rick Santorum on Timcast. He even was saying, and I mean, he's a Republican. He was a presidential candidate at one point. He said, oh, well, it's good that Nancy Pelosi's doing this because she has the right to go there as Speaker of the House and show that she's not scared of the CCP. It, it's, it's mind boggling to me. You know who else said that? Thomas Massey. Did he really? Uh, did he? Yeah, he was on Kennedy. No, yeah, he was on Kennedy and said that I think Nancy. Sh you sent me the clip, Kyle. I think Nancy should go. I didn't know that. That's very disappointing. Yeah, I didn't think well, he would say that because he's been good on the. I mean, foreign policy is not really his thing, but he votes yeah. against all the China bills. That's well, that's disappointing. He, he went out after one of the Syrian gas attacks and was on CNN saying. Frankly, I don't think it serves Assad's interest to gas his own people. And he got an incredulous response from the, the reporter. So, you know, Thomas Massey's not one to shy away from taking an unpopular but correct opinion. Mm -hmm. So let me, let me find that clip and send it to you because I, I want to make sure I get it right because I have a lot of respect for Massey. Yeah, yeah. so do I. I wow. Yeah, that's a shocker. And that seems to be kind of the popular talking point with a lot of people is that oh well she should be scared of the ccp and, and i think the larger point that we would make is well it's not about being scared of the ccp it's about why are we needlessly provoking china and there has been no clear like what she's doing over there at least not that i've seen and i know dave you've been covering this story very very closely and especially since you started doing your show um <laughs> it, it's there was no just clear explanation like why are you going over there what are you doing because this just seems to be needless provocation 
Yeah, I mean, that's what it was. You know, her line is that she had to, we have to stand up for Taiwan's democracy, which is under threat from China. And, you know, that was really her only explanation, which is just, you know, nonsense. And if you talk about that talking point, oh, the, the Chinese communists can't tell us what to do. But, you know, she's part of the U.S. government and the U.S. has a policy with related to China and Taiwan for a reason. And the whole reason that that situation exists is because of, you know, U.S. intervention in that region in the Chinese Civil War. And since then, um, it's not like it's just out of nowhere, which a lot of Americans probably don't understand, which is why they just, you know, kind of immediately take Taiwan's side and say, oh, yeah, they're, we got to stand up for Taiwan. Mm -hmm. um, but it's just uh, that's disappointing with Massey because I saw Ro Khanna say that and he's really good on yeah. like the wars in the Middle East, but he just sounded like a neocon when he was asked about that. And he's been he's really bad on Ukraine and Russia now. Um, so yeah, there's really like no opposition when it comes to China. There's no opposition to this stuff in in Washington. And uh, it's a really bad situation because when this starts really heating up, you're going to have you know nobody really speaking out against it in Congress. Frankly, even in like kind of independent media, there's not really many people um, that really focus on this besides like the Libertarian Institute, antiwar.com, Caitlin Johnstone. Um, you know, there's other people, uh, but there's not many. So it's kind of, uh, it's not going to be a good situation. So I, I, uh, I found the link to the Massey interview. Here, Here, do you want me to pull it up real quick? Sure. I mean, if you want to play it, it's it's yeah. a five minute clip. So I don't know about the whole I, thing. But. I think you uh, it's bookmarked right here. Can you guys see that? Let me make sure I got that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That that was an accident with the timestamp there. It, he starts okay. talking at one thirty. Okay. We'll start like right there at a minute thirty seconds. And is Kennedy uh, like, yeah, yeah, Kennedy. Back which is 50, a $50 billion gift to the semiconductor industry to try and bribe them to come to the United States. Maybe she's delivering a check to the Taiwanese semiconductor companies. Could be. Yeah, it's like, come Could over be. now. Uh, they're going to yeah. invade. Do you think she should go? You know, I don't think she should be precluded from going. Before I was in Congress, I went to Hong Kong, Taiwan, China. It's a unique relationship over there. One thing that I think she could do to be a little bit sensitive to the concerns is we have a choice of taking military aircraft as congressmen or taking private aircraft. And it might be appropriate in this case not to take the military planes when she flies over. Why? Well, you know, she has a choice, first of all. It's like a miniature Air Force One, if you will. Mm, yeah, I and, will. Um, and also, you know, there, there are movements of our aircraft carrier over there. I don't know if they're meant to coincide with what she's doing, but I think she has a right to go over there. I don't think she should cancel the trip. Do you think she's going to? Will she succumb to the pressure? Because obviously the Democrat establishment of which she is a pillar is they're, they're all, they're, their weapons are trained against her and they're trying to ground her. They're trying to force her to stay in the United States. I think she should go because I think the United States needs an element of unpredictability with Taiwan and China. Uh, we have been appeasing them. We've been showing all of our cards. Maybe it's time to play a little poker. 
Yeah, and the other factor we can't know, hopefully she's got some back-channel communications with the people in Taiwan. If they think it hurts the people in Taiwan, then maybe she shouldn't go. But if they, if they are secretly inviting her, of course they can't let any of this be known publicly, but... Is there anything else in the clip that uh, you felt necessary or... No, I, I don't think so. I mean, you, you see Kennedy's not great on the China issue, and I think she kind of puts words in Massey's mouth, to, to put it chari charitably to Massey, about the, the China situation. But, but Kennedy's expert on China is Mike Baker, the former CIA asset that was on <laughs> Joe Rogan. So I, I just recently found this out. So I, I, I know that I'm the China hall monitor of the libertarian movement. <laughs> so well. All right, guys, um, I'm absolutely thrilled with the uh, show's new sponsor. Um, I am now sponsored and uh, have an affiliate through LMNT Electrolytes. Um, I have used these electrolytes for years. Um, back when I used to do a lot of fasting, in fact, I used to drink, sometimes I want to say up to seven a day, seven little packets. So um, the packets are full of all the electrolytes that you need to perform and hydrate yourself properly. Um you need sodium for pretty much every single function in your body, despite what um, a lot of people may tell you. Um, sodium doesn't actually cause a lot of the issues that uh, people kind of would have you believe. So um, just real quick to give you a little bit of facts. Um, you don't need sugar to hydrate. Electrolytes and water don't require glucose to pass through the gut. The average American consumes over 60 pounds of sugar a year. And um, when it comes to athletic performance, um, you can actually lose up to seven grams per day in hot climate. So um, make sure you click on the affiliate link below to get all your hydration needs. And like I said, I'm super stoked to have these guys um, teamed up with the podcast and uh, just make sure you get your uh, electrolytes through Element. All right, guys, thanks. Yeah, I mean, that's what I mean. Like, you know, Kennedy, she has Scott and, and Dave Smith on all the time, but even she's not good on China. And Massey there, and I just want to say, so the trip was definitely related to chips in the sense, like what Massey said, they passed this $52 billion bill and they're trying to get Taiwanese semiconductor companies, their biggest one, TCMC, to build more facilities in the U.S. That definitely was a part of it. But that's something that could be done in a phone call. Um, but yeah, it kind of seemed like he was reluctantly saying she should go, which is kind of strange. Maybe... Mm -hmm. Um, but it's still disappointing to see. Yeah, and Pat, you brought up another good point on that one panel where you mentioned that the Biden administration was kind of like half-heartedly saying, well, we don't think she should go. Like they didn't come out and fully say like, no, this is a bad idea because obviously Biden talks on China, so they don't care if it's provocation. But once again, I, I think you said that um, – they wanted an out in case it went south, then you could kind of say, okay, well, that was just her on her own accord. Well, again, this is an idea I got from Dave from listening to Dave's show. So, I mean, it could <laughs> have right, been, yeah. it, it could have been something like that. I mean, um, like, like you'd have to believe that there would be a way that Biden could, he can't tell her not to go. Sure. But he could create, um, he could create a situation where she can't go like pull her, her escort or, or something. I mean, something creative like that. Yeah. At the end there, you saw them pretty much back her trip, uh, by putting, you know, escorting her plane and, uh, the white house said, yeah, she, she has the right to go. They can't stop her. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, those reports, it was interesting because there was a lot of reports in the New York times, Washington post that the Biden administration thought it was a bad idea. thought it would provoke this crisis that it, that it did. So, 
um, it was just such a weird thing. And I think there's probably elements of the Biden administration that was happy that she went. Biden probably doesn't know what's really going on, but uh, you know, there's definitely hawks that were probably happy about it. And then other people that really kind of, you saw Biden say that the military thinks it's a bad idea, which that happens a lot that other elements of the government are way more hawkish than the Pentagon because the Pentagon is the one that has to go out and do this stuff and respond to, the, to what China's doing. Um, so a lot of times they, they, they don't really want to go along, but then you see like the state department or Congress or the white house kind of push it further. One thing I wanted to mention too was, uh, Oh, Oh, the, on that point, And then another thing, but you did see white house officials saying, we don't think it's a good idea for Pelosi to go right now, which I thought signaled like a, a tacit kind of approval of such a high level delegation going to Taiwan eventually. Now, I think the reason why they gave it's not a good idea for her to go right now was not a great reason because I don't, I mean, I, Dave, do you, do you find it to be a particularly important thing that there were, I think the CCP was having some kind of an anniversary or an anniversary of the PLA during her trip or very close to when the trip happened. Is that a particularly sensitive thing? I don't think so. I think the reason why it was sensitive is because it was leaked to the media and that they knew it was coming. Um, and that gave them the time because uh, she was supposed to go back in April and then she got, she tested positive for COVID and then canceled it. Um, so I guess people were on the lookout for it maybe. And, but, and then you wonder why was it leaked to the media and who, you know, what interest did that serve? Um, and again, this just follows a pattern. I mean, you had a uh, Senator Rick Scott was there right before Pelosi visited Lindsey Graham and Bob Menendez were there just a few months before that, the head of the Senate foreign relations committee. And these are the people pushing these bills to give, to totally change us relationship with Taiwan. And if that happens, I mean, China's going to respond in some way. Um, but yeah, it's just, it follows a pattern and China needs to, in, from their point of view, they have to really make it clear and start changing things because the U.S. isn't listening. Now, right. one, thing, one thing I am working on, like I got a piece cooking about this, about the kind of the pundits and the rights talking points regarding the trip and the escalation afterwards. Yeah, I'm going to call it something like, gaslighting is U.S. diplomatic policy, where if, if people are familiar with gaslighting, it's like, I swear to God, you know, I have clients who have, are in abusive relationships, right? And one thing that their abusive partner says to them is, you're overreacting, you know? And, and that is the line that the, the U.S. State Department is giving China in a lot of pundits. And, and, and I, don't, I don't mean to say there were members of the panel too, who said, well, I think, the, the panel I was just on saying, I think that the United States or that China's overreacting here. They, and, and to be clear, you know, they didn't have to do what they did, but that doesn't mean we can't understand it. And I think that it's not helpful to say, well, you're just overreacting, you know, and like, like if, if you're in an abusive relationship and your partner says to you all the time, they try, they try to make you feel crazy for feeling the legit emotions that you are feeling. Now, that's not to say that China is great and everything they're doing is appropriate, but at the same time, they've expressed, they expressed things uh, for decades, uh, how they feel about the situation. And uh, even very close up to Pelosi's visit, they said exactly that they were going to respond. They didn't say exactly how, but they said it was going to elicit an extreme, problem, um, an extreme reaction. 
So you have all these these pundits and, and uh, Pelosi herself saying in the White House, I just looked at a piece in the Hill. Uh, Kurt Campbell, deputy assistant to President Biden, said on a call with reporters, quote, China has overreacted and its actions continue to be provocative, destabilizing and unprecedented. <laughs> so just kind of analysis. Uh, analyzing that response and, and thinking how this might play out further, because as you have Dave mentioned earlier, that the United States is going to react by probably having an upgraded uh, ship uh, parade through the Taiwan Strait. And this, this crisis could go on for months. That's what happened in the last crisis. You had just this continuing tit-for-tat spiral of, of escalation. So we could be in this for, you know, months yeah, so um, I guess to throw it to Dave real quick, um, I know you guys have mentioned that they've been ramping up the amount of warships that they sail through the strait there. Um, is there like a specific time during the month that they do that? Have they done it since Pelosi's visit, or do you think they're going to do one soon? If they do, what do you think that looks like? They use, they've been doing it now like about once a month. There's not really a rhyme or reason to it. It's about monthly that they do it. Sometimes it's twice in one month and they skip a month, but that's about the average we haven't seen one since Pelosi's visit, probably because China's military has been all over there. Uh, but now that they're they're saying that uh, they're gonna send some ships and planes over there soon, so I would guess you know it's usually just a destroyer. Um, we might see a few different types of warships. I don't know if an aircraft carrier is going to go through. We'll just have to wait and see what happens with that. But I think the U.S. is going to kind of step things up. And I think with Pat's analogy there, the, that they're just gaslighting China <laughs> is really accurate because we see them say this. We saw Pelosi and the Biden administration keep saying, like, we oppose any change to the status quo across the Taiwan Strait. Well, they're the ones changing it. They're the ones... You know, again, it doesn't justify what China is doing, but you have to understand why they're responding and, you know, people's personal feelings about Taiwan. People get so emotional, especially libertarians, about China and Hong Kong and Taiwan. Like those feelings don't matter about this. You have to just understand what the reality of this situation is and is that this is such a sensitive issue for China. They're never going to cede Taiwan to the West. You just understand basic Chinese history when it comes to their relationship with the West, they called the period of time in the mid 1800s to the end of the Chinese civil war, the century of humiliation. And they were talking about the opium wars when the, the British, you know, took Hong Kong from them, um, the U S and involvement, you know, putting down the box of rebellion, things like that in, in intervening in the war, Japan, what Japan did to China. This is everything to them is Taiwan. And they're not going to let it go. And you just have to understand that. And it's not worth what we're doing here. And the, and the U.S. is the one changing it. They're the ones changing the status quo. And it's not because they care about democracy in Taiwan. It's because they want to use Taiwan against China. They want to contain China. That's just what it's all about. And um, as a side note, too, it's never been about democracy in Taiwan because Taiwan was ruled under martial law by the Kuomintang from, I think, 49 until 87. It, yeah, it's a good point. If you go to the Wikipedia page, which I know is a vaunted, you know, it's a great <laughs> place to get information. But at least on Wikipedia, it says that this was the longest period of martial law in 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 recorded history, at least or modern history. And and so it, it's never been about democracy. But you know, if you're Tim Pool, you can say, well, <laughs> no, I think that the Kuomintang are the rightful rulers of China. 
in that they need to, you know, go back to that time when the real goal was to get the uh, Chinese nationalists to uh, launch an invasion of China from Taiwan to retake their rightful place as the head of state. What's interesting too now is that the Kuomintang is the more, they're the party that leans more towards unification, the, the Democratic Progressive Party, I think it's called. Yeah. That's the, the party of the president of Taiwan. They're, they're more independence leaning. And the Kuomintang, they just sent a delegation to mainland China and they're getting a lot of crap for it. Um, but it's just interesting, you know, it's the party of Chiang Kai-shek and they're the ones that are leaning more toward unification. Mm -hmm. Well, I know you guys said you only had about an hour, but I want to throw one more question to you guys, if you guys don't mind. Sure. Yeah, go for it. Cool. Um, <laughs> now, obviously it's a ways out and um, I will definitely do this again because I really enjoyed this show and it was very informative. And uh, as per the first time Pat was on, the first time you were on, Dave, uh, I, I have to listen to um, everything through again. 2024 comes around and let's say it's DeSantis versus uh, Kamala. Now Kamala doesn't know her ass from a hole in the ground, but uh, what do you think it looks like if DeSantis becomes president in 2024? Because he's been pretty abysmal on the China issue as well. I think it would look exactly the same. Really? <laughs> Foreign policy speaking. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think uh, the only difference is that with Iran, like he would be kind of more hawkish and upfront about what he wants with Iran um, you know, maybe there could be some change with Ukraine and Russia because there does seem to be some real sen sentiment, even in the Republican Party against, you know, intervention there. But when it comes to China, it, it, it'll probably be the same, maybe worse. Um, but, uh, you know, we'll see. You know, we'll only know if he does become president. But I, I would guess that it would pretty much be the same. I mean, mm -hmm. Biden's been very, when it comes to foreign policy, very similar to Trump, pretty much followed that same path. We don't know what would have happened with Russia and Ukraine if Trump was president. There's no way to know. Um, but this idea that this wouldn't happen under Trump, I think is misguided because Trump was the first one to send Ukraine offense, you know, weapons, yeah, anti-tank missiles and stuff. Uh, he was very hawkish on Russia. Part of the reason why was because they kept, you know, accusing him of working for Vladimir Putin. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think it'll be pretty similar. I think ultimately, no matter who is elected, the foreign policy is pretty much going to be the same. Mm -hmm. But the reason why the Ukraine crisis didn't happen under Trump is because Trump told Putin, if you move on Ukraine, I will nuke Moscow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he, he was same. big, bad, and tough. He rolled over and did whatever the military-industrial complex told him to do. So that's how you know he was a tough guy. Yeah, I was just quoting Tim Pool there. I yeah. mean, in, in case you were wondering, oh, really? I got that from Kyle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what he said. Wow. And same. I will same say, Biden definitely. You know, if you're going to move and the U.S. is your adversary that you have to worry about, Biden definitely seems a lot weaker <laughs> than Trump did. Yeah, yeah. yeah but I mean, it, they it, it, kind of like you said, Dave. It always seems just equally as escalatory. Nobody really uh, gives a shit, and Biden's policy is just you know kind of whatever happens happens. If it's escalatory, it just is what it is. Um, yeah, if you guys don't have any uh, closing thoughts, we'll close her out. Yeah, well, you can find my work at libertyweekly.net, uh, libertarianinstitute.org, and uh, libertyweekly.club is my membership website if you want to support the work that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Of course, I am a, a subscriber, and I really enjoy reading your uh, articles. I know you sent them over to me, and uh, yeah, definitely check that out. Yeah, and I appreciate that, man. Mm -hmm. Of course, Dave? Yeah, uh, you could uh, just read my 
work at antiwar.com. Um, I started a new podcast a few weeks ago. It's called Antiwar News, and you could find it on YouTube and download it where you listen to podcasts. It's just a daily show, about 20 minutes a day, just going over all the stuff from writing, trying to like expand our audience. Cause I know a lot of people just, they want to, you know, digest their news through a podcast or something instead of, you know, reading. Yeah. Awesome stuff. Well, I really appreciate you guys coming on and uh, we'll definitely do it again. I really enjoyed this. So, uh, you know, until next time, everybody rock and roll. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.